0: Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life.
1: All right, so Steve, we've got uh, some correspondence coming back in now, so let's just start a new segment for our podcast here called We've Got Mail. Uh picked this one up from E3 Outfitters off of Apple Podcasts. He left us a nice review there, and I'll just read it. It says, uh, I have learned a lot from your show. I like how you explain the topics and make a novice to a pro fit right in. The message of respect you send is spot on, and all us hunters being on the same page is where we need to be to protect all the things we are hunting. These guys are two you want at your campfire sharing laughs and stories if you ever find yourself in southern michigan look me up hey
2: that's great you know uh and that uh that vision of that campfire chat is something that's very appealing to me for sure hey uh chris we got one from nicholas brown he lives down in chatworth georgia yeah and this came in through uh social media he says been listening to the podcast only this week and wanted to say that i'm really enjoying them there's a lot of knowledge there and i have a lot to learn 22 years old and i've been coon hunting for about eight years and have established my own line of dogs well way to go nicholas that's great Uh, that i enjoy hunting love the podcast keep them up you know chris this kind of feedback really gets us going and keeps us going and uh, we urge all our listeners out there to feedback to us either on apple podcast or through social media email or
1: whatever way let us know what you think about the podcast oh absolutely i couldn't agree more we we don't we don't know which direction to go if we don't know what our listeners want to hear so sometimes no news is good news but uh we do enjoy talk as you can tell we enjoy talking to houndsmen and and uh neither one of us are are uh, shy about talking to people so keep that stuff coming absolutely well steve you know we're we picked up our title sponsor w hunting supply and uh you got any thoughts on w Well, yeah,
2: Chris, you know, summertime is right now and it's a great time for us to gear up for the fall hunts that we're going to be enjoying this fall. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than to have a hunt all planned out and discover that, you know, there's something wrong with the equipment. It's not working right or we forgot to replace an item that we knew that we're going to need when hunting seasons roll around. Uh, and usually we think of those things uh, when there's no time to get it shipped to us. But uh, Buddy and his staff at W uh, have what I like to call a one-stop store, uh, online store that you can, you know, find virtually anything that you want uh, on that one visit to uh, com. And uh, I just can't say enough about them. I, I was browsing this morning and looking at uh, the light section on uh, uh, W, and they uh, carry the k light uh, line of lights, and, and that happens to be the line of lights that I like to use. But whatever it is out there that you're looking for, you can find it at
1: dusupply.com. Yeah, there's no doubt. And and like we've showcased before, it's like they live in a time machine because it seems to get here before you're done uh, putting your order and confirming that order. Uh, I've had stuff show up here before it cleared my bank account before, so pretty good stuff. Absolutely. du-supply.com. <laughs> This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. We have got a a very great guest today. Uh, He's a man of many talents. The one, the only, the Ayatollah of rock and roll, Alan Gingrich of the United Kennel. (laughs) So we've also got Steve on here. And uh, Steve, how are you today? Chris, I'm just awesome, man. I'm sitting down here in the
2: sauna. Uh, you know, 90s every day now, rain every afternoon, nice, moist uh, conditions. Uh, we're breeding mosquitoes by the millions. Uh, <laughs> you know, gators are doing v- really well. <laughs> the armadillo crop I- is up. I look for a great harvest this fall. So everything's great down here in the swamp.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, you can pull some of that heat back down south with You. you- all you guys moved down there to Florida because you want this heat, but it seems like you keep sending it this way. We've been trying to work all week in this stuff, and it's really slowing crews down, I can tell you that.
2: Well, it's I, I would say this, but I would uh, insult a lot of Hoosiers. It could be that, you know, <laughs> it sucks up there, maybe. I don't know, and you're pulling everything up that way. Man, I, I don't I'll know what's you what. happening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you won't get any argument from me. <laughs> so hey let's just dive right into uh talking with alan today so alan we'll get back to you how are
0: you i'm doing very well thank you doing good this morning
1: <clears throat> so have you been listening to this mess we call a podcast
0: well yeah i have i've uh i've listened to all of your episodes and uh, really have enjoyed it you guys are doing a great job with it but uh yeah, kind of like Steve's introduction there, I think uh, mine could be almost the same, only I'm about 18 hours north and no gators. Other than that, it's about the same, I think, this
1: morning. Yeah, you well, guys I'm sure kidding. sure <laughs> do breed mosquitoes in up, up there, that's for sure. Yeah. You know,
2: actually, on that subject, I do recall the mosquitoes in Michigan being much worse than they are down here. I'm about two miles from the Gulf of Mexico here, so we get a breeze and – and I think that helps, and we don't have a lot of standing water around where I'm here, but man, I remember those summertime coon hunts in Michigan. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I had a mesh ball cap on one time, one of the mesh backed ones, and I put it over my face like a catcher's mask to try to keep the mosquitoes <laughs> out. It was. And then it the was back yeah.
1: And then the back of your head looked like you had smallpox. <laughs>
0: yeah, they, they do grow them big up here in the north.
2: For sure. For sure. You know, Alan, I'm really happy that you're here with us today. Uh, I think you and I have a lot in common because we've basically uh, sat in the same chair up there on Kilgore Road. And uh, uh, and uh, I had some really good times and good years with UKC. Love the organization. Still do just really glad to have you and you're a guy that people out there respect and like and that's the kind of people that we're hopefully attracting to our podcast and uh, so i'm just really excited i think we've got some notes that we want to go uh try to go by today and to cover all the bases because as chris said you do wear a lot of hats you have a lot of talents and some of the things that maybe the our listeners don't know about you are the things that I'd like most to explore today. Well,
1: I I can tell you that uh, Alan came down and provided our entertainment at the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance banquet one year, and uh, we'd had different types of entertainment, but I I really enjoyed Alan's. I mean, he just sat down at a microphone with a guitar, and uh, it was great. And so that's why I introduced you the way I did, Alan. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. your, your your talents <laughs> uh, as as a musician, I mean, they're they're awesome, and a lot of people wouldn't know that about you either.
0: Well, I don't know They you know what they say. Kind of a jack of all trades and kind of a master of none is probably where I fit in
3: somewhere. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you grew up in northern Michigan, not not the UP, but up there. Just kind of tell us a little bit about uh, you uh and your days before coming to ukc i knew you grew up around alpena up there didn't you
0: well it was a little south of Alpina. yeah it was a little town called mayo uh right on the alzabo river which is uh about uh what is it 70 miles south of the bridge i think just about 30 miles northeast of grayling is actually where i grew up and uh yeah so i grew up on a, on a small dairy farm up there and uh and And I had a kind of the oldest of uh of a large family, but uh, yeah, that's where I grew up at
2: well i I've been to my, uh, Mayo one time went up there on a hare hunt, and uh, I remember it was ten degrees out, bright sunny, and we had lunch out on the tailgate. There was no wind blowing, it was just an awesome day. The first time I saw one of those those hares go across the lane there. <laughs> Taking about looked to me like twenty feet a jump ahead of the beagles, uh, but uh, it's a great part of the country up there. Tell uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in that part of the country.
3: Yeah,
0: so we uh, I was actually still quite young when we moved up there. I was actually born here in Indiana, and my uh, my dad worked in the RV industry down here in Indiana or whatever. But I was I believe I was about eight years old when we moved up there and. And I can still remember the day we uh, we actually moved there, got there and everything. Uh, Dad was, I believe, only 29 years old at the time, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so moved up there on this, this farm. And uh, oh, just some of the things that were so different from what I was used to. I, I remember going up there, uh, like on a trip up there before we actually moved up there, you know. And to me, it was a total different, as a little kid, it seemed like a total different world, you know, to me from what I was used to, you know, I saw uh, pictures of bears everywhere up there and I thought we were moving into bear country, you know, but, uh, <laughs> then 15 years later, I don't think I've ever seen a bear right there in my head. But <laughs> you No, know, some of the, uh, obviously the winters are, uh, kind of long and cold snow gets deep up there. And, uh, I remember one of the other things I first noticed, uh, one of the first days up there, uh, was a, uh, a thumping sound i could hear coming from off in the distance and mm. didn't know anything about that but grouse <laughs> so yeah we had a lot of grouse so uh you know obviously grew up chasing grouse and stuff like that but uh yeah so grew up on a on a farm up there did a dad did some logging for some loggers in the in the summertime dad had several horses or whatever you know he'd take him in with just a single horse or whatever and we'd go help him on on saturdays when we weren't in school but uh yeah, just uh, a, a lot of stuff like that is uh, is what we did, you know, farm stuff. And then wintertime was uh, more logging stuff, I guess. A lot of firewood to cut as a kid, that's for sure. <clears throat>
2: <laughs> We're well, still, yeah, go ahead, Chris.
1: No, I was just going to say my kids are still growing up that way or they did, you know, most of them are adults now. Uh, but uh, they've got their, they've had their fill of firewood cutting.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, every uh, every fall we'd have to uh, fill up the basement. It usually took the basement full of firewood to, to get through the winter. So yeah, that was just part of our uh, part of part of the makeup of growing up up north is cutting firewood. You know, at all uh, all uh, that was 1977, I believe, when we moved up there that year. So yeah. But, uh, yeah, just a uh, farm life up there. It was a, it was a good place to grow up. And, uh, uh, you know, I had, uh, obviously living on the farm, there was always work to do. And even when you're, when your friends, your school friends are out shooting hoops and, and riding their bikes and stuff like that, I, uh, shoot, there was hay to bail and, and all kinds of stuff like that around the farm. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I mentioned it's just northeast of Grayling. There's a military base there in uh Grayling, and in the summer times we'd be working the fields or whatever, but one of the things I always enjoyed was uh, they did all their uh uh practice stuff out there, you know, uh with the with their planes and all that, and uh, it was it was neat to see some of that stuff.
2: <clears throat> I got you. Well, well, where did where yeah, awesome. A kid would, I I'm sure. Hey, well, when did the hounds enter the picture for you?
0: Well, um, my first, uh, first I remember of any hounds was my grandfather in Indiana. He, uh, he had a farm as well, but, uh, and that was at a very young age, uh, was a, uh, out behind the, the barn, he had a little, he had a horse barn, he was a, a horse breeder, and uh, out behind his, uh, Barn there he had an acre, I don't know approximately maybe an acre that was kind of fenced off for an exercise area for his mares that were on the urine line during the wintertime. But out there in that lot is he had an old walker hound uh, tied up out there. He named him Ace. And I remember as a young young kid, I probably wasn't more than three, four years old and I still that was first hound I uh, ever remember and uh, I still remember exactly what he looked like. And what it smelled like to go out there too, where you was tied up, you know and uh, but I was just infatuated with that uh with that dog, so that was kind of my first uh introduction to dogs, you know or hounds anyways and uh and then just my uncles, you know they were talking to them about it and everything, all the stories they had I was just uh I was very interested in and in, uh at at some point must have been in the fall of the year again, I was still pretty young, but I remember one day i Mom and I were over there at Grandpa's, and and uh, they had got all these flashlights laying out and a bunch of gear. And I remember these long flashlights laying there, three, four of them. And obviously that piqued my interest. And in, uh, I guess long story short, it was the first night of coon season, and uh, I was very interested in everything about it. And uh, it was very disappointing. I couldn't go with them, but. Uh, they had uh they had some hunting ground around uh, right around his farm there and uh i remember listening a little bit and heard that dog running back there and i was just i was just hooked uh, for some reason it just really drew my attention you know i could hear him from the house and uh hmm. and that was kind of my my first thing that i remember of of coon hunting and and then uh eventually obviously i got to go and and it's kind of just uh it's kind of where it started but uh as far as personally, my uh, first dog I got when my brother and I got our first dog when we were, uh, I'd say I was 12. I think we were like 10, 11, 12-ish right in, that, uh, right in that time period, I guess. But we bought a little puppy. Knew nothing other than, uh, other than what uh, Grandpa told us, you know, as far as training a puppy. And uh, so uh, we got this little, this little female in Rose City, Michigan. I still remember driving over there and getting her. And, and the, I remember the guy had, the uh, guy had papers for it and everything. Heck, I didn't want that. We didn't, we didn't even take the papers. We we just wanted to coon <laughs> on. We didn't, we didn't need nothing else. You
3: know?
0: <laughs> so anyways, uh, we'd call grandpa, you know, and he kind of told us what we needed to do with this puppy as far as training goes. And uh, I believe it was in March when we got this dog. And in that summer, we would go across the, we had property on both sides of the road we grew up on and, uh, and we had a big cornfield over there and we'd lay drags like grandpa told us to start off with laying the drag and hanging it up on a fence post and graduated to a tree, you know, eventually. And this dog would actually, I, I can't believe it. You know, how, how lucky can you get? But this dog opened on trail with tree on these fence posts and eventually the trees there, uh, alongside the the one woodlot we had and um and steve i cannot believe we did not ruin this puppy it was you talk about overkill we did some (laughs) extreme training two little boys that knew nothing other than following grandpa's orders you know but uh I remember then the first night of season, it happened here, here comes grandma and grandpa came up there and I'm sure it was all planned. We just didn't know about it. It was kind That's of a surprise right. for us,
3: but, <laughs> and we
0: had never even shown this dog a coon before the first, uh, night of kill season. Hadn't even seen a coon just all off the scent that summer. And uh, anyways, grandpa and dad, my brother and I, we went right across the road where we'd done all our training for so many days, you know? And, uh, Turned this dog loose and she took off down through there, and it didn't take her long and she struck a track. But this time she went out the opposite way, and we the way we always took our drags and uh goes back there. I don't know, there's probably four or five hundred yards before you get to the big woods on the back side of our property. There's one lone apple tree, and she treed that coon on that apple tree, and that was uh my first experience with our with the first dog we ever had so you talk about a couple excited boys
1: no kidding that's uh (laughs) you know there's there's something to that Mm -hmm. alan uh i want to take us back to the story about you know when you when you were standing there on the porch listening to that dog run and you couldn't go how old were you then
0: i was probably chris i don't think i was probably more than four or five at the most
1: yeah yeah so And,
0: and you you know, what's interesting about that, you know, later on in life here, obviously my brother and I hunted a lot up here in Indiana and, uh, grandpa no longer alive now or whatever, but back there, it was probably, I want to say he passed maybe 25 years ago now, mm-hmm. but, uh, we still hunted his farm. My brother and I did but uh, he would always want us to come and make sure we'd wake him up or make sure he'd be up, and he'd sit on his porch and listen to our dogs around.
1: Isn't that cool?
0: You know, mm, it, yeah. is, y- it you always know. was, and we tried to make that our first drop, you know, early so he could, you know, and obviously he was an old man by then, you know, but uh, it was kind of kind of reversed like that. always kind of thought about that. But we tried to kind of go out of our way to make that our first drop and make sure Grandpa could uh, listen to it. He was kind of like we were, you know, he was, he was a coon hunter and, and loved, loved his dogs.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, Alan, your story reminds, excuse me, Chris, but your story reminds me so much of my dad's story growing up on a farm in middle Tennessee, sleeping upstairs with his older brother, Phil in the feather bed and listening to the neighbor's uh, old coon hound, a fellow named Wash Work. Uh, hound trail up the river and my dad uh, told me he was just a little guy and he would they would sit there or lay there in bed and listen to that dog and that's what created that that desire and then finally uh, his folks would let them take the lantern with a dog of their own. My grandpa's old cur dog and, and walk down the Creek, but they had to stay where the folks could see the lantern light from the house, you know, but, sure, uh, anyway, sure. it's, uh, your story is, is probably resonating with a lot of people that are listening to this podcast of how, you know, but they say it's inborn this, this love of the hounds, but I, I think probably it's more taught at a very young age by our, by our families uh, than any other way. But it's great story, great and, story. Yeah. And to relate, well, well to re- dad, yeah. be re-
1: just let me jump in here real quick, Alan, just kind of yeah. add credibility to this. I remember when I was a young kid like that, I didn't grow up with hounds in, in my immediate household, but my uncle had hounds. And uh, we would go out there different times and – uh I can tell you that if you went out there for Sunday dinner and, uh, when it got dark, you better not be parked behind him because he was leaving to go coon hunting. And I remember yeah. being out to, <laughs> and a lot of times we would leave after, after he, uh, he, he would go or while he was loading up, but, uh, it always intrigued me. I always enjoyed watching him load those hounds and, and, uh, he would do something similar if we stayed around. I remember one night we were sitting out on the on the porch of this big farmhouse and uh he went right down the road it probably wasn't a quarter mile down the road and dropped those hounds out and i sat out there and i listened to him strike a track and and tree that raccoons and you could see their lights down there and it it just intrigued me as a as a young kid i was probably oh nine or ten years old uh when that started happening and i think there's something to that specific act of of no, you can't go now, uh, and and making these kids want to do that sort of stuff, you know, letting their imaginations run with them and things like that. You see a lot of things on social media about these guys packing their three and four-year-old kids out there and making them sit in a in a blind and giving them an iPad and all that stuff. They They really haven't got yeah. any – they haven't developed their own desire to do that th- sort of thing, so – I think there's a common thread there for our serious houndsmen out there that that um, had this innate or instinctive uh, desire to to be involved in and, and uh, I think there's something too making a kid sit back and wait and develop their own desire to be involved
0: yeah I think that's the, I think you're spot on with that Chris you know either either you're kind of it's something that's kind of uh, in your blood or it isn't, you know, however, it, however it gets there, you know, but yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's like, grandpa was kind of a hero to me. My, now my dad hunted some, but he, he mostly, he always had a beagle around and, uh, but so he rabbit hunted some and, uh, and did some bird hunting, but, uh, he wasn't a hunter like grandpa was. Now I say a hunter that's grandpa deer hunted and stuff like that too, or things like that. But, uh, Uh, but yeah, it was his coonhound that, uh, that really infatuated me as a youngster, you know, and I remember going out there a lot of times, just go out there and, and you know, how little kids do just kind of pet over old, old ace and everything. And, uh. But, yeah, he had – Grandpa had – he was kind of a a horse breeder, too. He had a lot of horses around there. So that's kind of also where my love for horses kind of started as well. So, yeah, I could say Grandpa was kind of a hero. But one other point I'd make is that was kind of interesting, I guess. uh, Mom told me one time uh, later in life that uh, when we were still boys or whatever, that she asked Grandpa one time or she told Grandpa, her dad, that – every chance we get all we want to do is just hunt, you know and, and and she worries about us sometimes we just take off and go you know and uh and uh she said well grant her dad grandpa told her that uh it's in their blood and they could be doing a lot uh they could be doing a lot worse he said he told her to let them go they know what they're doing
2: yeah <laughs> yeah them,
0: so.
2: well so, yeah. that's great Alan, uh, you talk about we, and I assume that you're talking about your brother, Paul. Is that correct?
0: I am. You know, my brother, I was the oldest, and Paul was the second oldest. He's about a year and a half older than I am, and, you know, we, him and I did everything together growing up. You know, we, like I mentioned, we, we went in and bought that first pup together, and and, uh, we have done everything together and, uh, kind of like a, like a lot of brothers probably went on a lot of hunting trips and, and, uh, even, even in the, uh, uh, as we got older, you know, uh, uh, he got married and everything else and all, and all that. And probably since I've been working at UKC, you know, that kind of, that kind of has diminished a lot. We don't hunt together nearly as much anymore as we used to, but, uh but yeah up until then it was like uh he was my hunting partner and I was his and, and a lot of things like that you know so yeah
2: well you and uh, you and Paul together got interested in the redbone breed did you not
0: yeah we did you know and I'd say a lot of that had to do with the uh, the first pup that we got was in fact a redbone uh red that redbone female and uh we just liked her and really uh I'd say looking back now we we're really lucky to have a pup like that that turned out the way it did, and we didn't ruin it, you know, <laughs> with our training resume there. But uh, uh, yeah, so that's and we just kind of stuck with it, you know. Uh, I know after uh, after school and everything, I uh, there was a couple of years there where I kind of got interested in probably some things I shouldn't have or whatever that I didn't have a dog around, and that was after I moved back to Indiana. Uh, kind of got playing a little bit of music and things like that or whatever so there's about there's about two three years there where, where i didn't hunt that much but uh kind of figured out the whole music thing and that wasn't going to work out and needed to do something else and uh, to make a living and everything else so but here i go right back to dogs again and then rest is history i guess
2: <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about that music background uh, uh chris yeah. has talked. Chris has talked about uh, you playing i I've walked around at Autumn Oaks after all the casts are out and walk around through the campsites and I'm as apt as not to see you there uh w- with some guys gathered around with your guitar and all and that's something that I enjoyed doing a lot myself when I was a young guy. I kind of grew up well my dad was from Tennessee near Nashville and he played fiddle but I I didn't have that kind of talent. My my brother's a musician but I learned to play chords on a guitar and kind of grew up in that uh, uh coffee house age and those uh uh, protest songs and that sort of thing. When I was in college, Michael row the boat ashore. And if I had a hammer and that kind of thing, but uh, yeah, but you, you've taken it uh, uh, certainly farther than I did. T- tell us a little bit about that music.
0: Well, I probably didn't take it much further than you did. My, my first experience was after I, after school and everything, I moved back to Indiana and took a job in the RV industry or whatever. But, uh, that's when I first got my, my first guitar, which was, I was probably, uh, I don't know, you know, late teens, I guess, and kind of took it up then. And, and, uh, and, and actually my brother kind of followed me down here after school and and did the same thing. So there again, he was, he was, uh, he also took interest in it and uh, we thought we were going to get a band together and (laughs) we got our guitars and everything else. We were going to learn all these songs and hear the next, Three four months we were gonna get get us some gigs, you know. Well, that's not the <laughs> way it works, you know. But, anyways, eventually we did uh, hook up with some guys and formed, uh, played in a couple bands just around the local local area here. And and uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. But we, uh, I never got into any much of the technical stuff. You know, it was uh, I it's the first band I ever got into. I was the rhythm player in the band. So I never got into a whole lot of leads and a lot of fancy stuff and a lot of uh, advanced things. So, so I never really, uh, never really did, you know, and then after uh, about the mid, when was it mid nineties, I guess, kind of laid that up as far as playing in bands and uh, you know, it obviously got back into hunting and it's kind of, you know, started competition hunting during that time a little bit as well. So uh, I finally kind of figured it out. I'm going to, quit this band stuff that we're not getting anywhere with and uh, uh, get kind of do more hunting again, I guess. But uh, so to, to kind of sum it up, I guess what I'm saying, I'm more of a, uh, more of a, uh, open guitar chord kind of wannabe kind of guitar picker, I guess you would say. I'm not very good, but I love to sit around and, and play with people and, and things like that. So yeah, that's about the extent of it anymore.
2: <laughs> well, I think, you know, when my son was eight years old, he came to me and he said, dad, show me how to play the guitar. So I showed him an E chord. All right. That was pretty yeah. simple. Yeah. And right. uh, before I knew it, he was asking me to, to, to take him downtown to a guy that was teaching Uh, lessons and all and this kid just took it and ran with it you know and and just uh, of course he grew up during those pearl jam garage band days and it it, his bedroom often sounded like somebody uh cutting up beer cans with a chainsaw you know but (laughs) (laughs) but anyway and his teachers told me he said one teacher told me you better cut the strings on that guitar that's going to lead to no good (laughs) <laughs> but uh, he he didn't. He he kept it on the hobby level and all. And uh, yeah, but uh, well, that, yeah, it's it can be a lot of fun.
0: You mentioned uh, you mentioned young kids, you know, and you're right. It seems like the the younger kids they take up something like that. They can just learn so much quicker than than I could when I started. I guess. But uh, my brother's oldest boy is a good example of that. He basically was born into it, you know, around the house. We were always playing music, and I showed him his first chords when he was, I remember it on Thanksgiving Day uh, when he was seven. And he had a little guitar he'd beat, him, beat and bang around with a little before then, but I actually showed him his first chords then, and, you know, it didn't take him long. When he was nine, I think he played at some wedding reception we played. He played, sat in with us and played, and shoot, today he's, he is, <laughs> way he blows me away you know (laughs) we have a hard time getting him to come play with us if we want him to sit in as a group you know (laughs) especially (laughs) out somewhere you know he's he's kind of way past that now but uh, yeah it's all good yeah
2: well you know alan i'm looking back i think the first time you and i met was at a rabbit hunt I'm, i'm thinking it was at albion indiana i could be wrong on that but it was Back when we started the hunting beagle program with UKC, I believe, uh, do you remember anything about that?
0: I do vaguely, and I think you're right. I think that is probably where we first met there at the old Albion Club, and uh, I didn't live too far from there. But, yeah, I used to go up there to their trials all the time.
2: Yeah. Well, what about the hare hunting up there in northern Michigan? You, still, you go back up there uh, and do that, don't you?
0: we do yeah we you know so we we grew up with it and uh and we had both cottontails and and snowshoe hair up there in mayo where where we were at it was about half and half kind of depended where we go but uh yeah we would we would hunt both as kids and and but there was just something about the hair hunting that was always oh we loved it when our dogs got on a hair you know just it was, just, uh, it was I like cottontails, too, but there's just something about the way a hare just runs a little different, you know, and they take them out a lot further, and it's uh, it's a little more excitement. You know, you always have that, uh, every time, it's uh, still every time you go up there, the first track you get on when you're not, uh, you know, when you're not used to it, you think the dogs might be running a deer or something, you know, they just kind of blow out in a straight line, maybe kind of like a deer would, but uh, go out of hearing, you know, and, and just kind of wait and, Hope it's right, you know, and eventually here you hear them coming again, you know. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, yeah they can, you can put on some miles in a hurry, hair hunting, or the dogs do.
2: <laughs> you know, up there, it's like in those, uh, I guess, uh, is that cedar swamp area in there?
0: It is. There's, yeah, there's some of that, and that's kind of where we had to go places like that is where we would hit hair yeah. up there. But there's quite a few, you know, quite a few places like that. But uh, yeah, and now since then, you know, we still. Uh there's there's six of us boys in my family and, and five of us hunt. There's one of one of the boys, second to the youngest, that uh never really took up hunting for some reason, but all of the rest of us did. My brother Paul and I, we mostly coon hunted and obviously did a bunch of rabbit hunting as well. But the other uh the other three brothers, they don't coon hunt but they just rabbit hunt. So but yeah, still every year we it's kind of a tradition for us boys to uh all go up north and generally we'll kinda uh, we'll kind of start around Mayo one day there, and uh, just kind of for old times' sake, I guess, our old stomping grounds. And it's, uh, it's always neat to go back there to some of those same old places we used to hunt, you know. And uh, But then usually we gravitate up to the UP, where you get into the really good hare hunting. So, yeah, it's always a trip I look forward to, and we just love it.
2: Do you keep beagles yourself, Alan, or do you— uh
0: yeah i i do you know what uh like i said dad had beagles at home the only times in in me for me uh that i was not around beagles was probably those couple years uh you know i mentioned when we were kind of doing everything else but uh or doing a lot of things we shouldn't have been doing you know but uh they're in our late teens and early 20s or whatever uh so there was a span of about three years maybe two three years where i didn't have a beagle but uh, ever since then i've always had a pack of beagles yeah and i've got uh i don't have many out here i've got to keep about three or four i got four out here now i guess so yeah
2: well that's you know I always enjoyed the beagles when we started the hunting beagle program and i can't you probably have the numbers there uh i don't remember exactly the year but uh i got a couple of dogs and uh, used to enjoy running them every day after work there at, at ukc and uh, enjoyed that a lot uh you uh you actually ran that hunting beagle program uh, for quite a few years didn't you
0: i i did you know todd morgan was up there running it when i first started up there and then he uh he uh quit at ukc i think it was 2008 I think. And so I kind of took it over there for, to begin with, it was just supposed to be until we got somebody else to replace him. And we eventually did. And, and, uh, uh, that individual is there for, I don't know, maybe only a year and a half. So then it kind of comes back in my lap to the UKT Google programs. Uh, so I did it again there until here recently we had, uh, uh, had uh, another beagle guy and and he 's not there anymore either so i don't know why we can't
2: keep a you guys guy are around, tough but... on guys makes
0: me look kind of bad but uh anyways uh i have so i've been kinda of involved really since two thousand and eight in in some form and uh but it's kind of you know for me uh I used to trial quite a bit, and most of it was the was back in the mid nineties and I was actually doing It was after the whole music thing. I just did nothing but hunt, Steve, Uh, and pretty religiously uh, hunted, uh, you know, coon hunted, and I'm talking about competitions, and uh, same with the Beagle trials. Did it for about two years, and I wore myself out. Finally, I said, you know what, I need to uh, do one or the other and and put more emphasis on one or the other instead of just – I couldn't uh, run the dogs enough. There's a lot of times I'd go to a night hunt on a Friday night and be up and you know at four o'clock in the morning going to a beagle trial. You know, a lot of times the, their deadlines are six, seven in the morning and and a lot of times without sleep and ah, finally after a couple of years of that, I thought I'm probably overdoing it a little bit. But it, you know what? It was a lot of it was just just ate up with it, love it, you know, and and still do. I I absolutely love those beagle trials too.
2: Well, I think we all are that way, uh, Alan, but there's a thing called uh, age <laughs> that comes into play. I know I was that way, too. I couldn't get enough of it. We, With us back in West Virginia, it was bear hunting and coon hunting and trying to mix the two, you know, and that that was uh, uh uh, exercise and futility at times but uh yeah. but uh yeah. well did, did you ever did you ever go up there uh,
0: hair hunting the up at all or
2: no i didn't go to the up i i did go up and hunt with joe and nancy hudson on bear and also on bobcats but uh oh, yeah. Yeah. anyway but no i i didn't get to the up for hair but I, i'm sure it would be great up there i think chris wants to jump in here alan
1: yeah sure. alan um do you have a, a memorable hunt that uh, stands out in your mind? Anything on the, on hunting hares or hunting rabbits? Uh, any particular story that, or is it just kind of uh, an overall euphoria about, you know, your memories of hunting hare and, and rabbits in upper Michigan?
0: Yeah. So I don't know that I really have any particular one that really stands out to me a whole lot. Last year was, last year was one that was, we kind of had a, a unique situation. A friend of mine went and I went up uh, uh, on a separate trip and we stopped there in Mayo and, and hunted for a Saturday. And then we went on up to the UP and uh, hunted a little bit on Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon, I guess it was. But, uh, uh, and one of my other brothers was coming up with some other guys on that trip. And we were to meet with them up there in the UP. But, uh, I remember about uh, that was on a Monday then a, and a Tuesday, and we were just running. Every, running was just awesome last year again. And uh, about the second day, you know, we would put a bunch of miles on our dogs already, the dogs that we had, and just uh, uh, wanted to make sure they get all their dogs running. Everybody brings a bunch of dogs. We've got, I don't know, 10, 12 dogs up there, or they do, yeah. and we've got a, six or eight of them. So we went a couple miles or a mile and a half down the road. Uh, my buddy and I did, like on a Tuesday morning, and we cut out. And the thing that I've just not heard it up there, being a mile and a half away, we thought we were far enough away. Well, we, we cut our pack loose, and before we know it, uh, uh, you know, kind of surprising we're not getting a strike yet. And Look at our garments here. We've got a couple dogs going to theirs. Hmm. But uh, the point I'm making what was interesting was uh, – uh eventually we we moved on down the road uh, grabbed up the rest of our pack and moved on down the road further but we could hear our dog on that morning for 1.7 miles we could hear a beagle and the only way we could because we had a collar on our beagles that were running with their pack but it was just so still up there uh, that you could hear beagles running that far away 1.7 miles and
1: it's, That's it's crazy uh,
0: it was uh, it kind of stuck to me and then uh we had uh, we made another trip up there later. Now that that was in October before the snow was on. So in November, I think it was around Thanksgiving time, went up there again and uh, uh, everything snow covered. But just the difference was, shoot, we could hear the dogs as well as at 1.7 miles before the snow was on, as we could in November when it was on at 500 yards. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but just, yeah. just amazing how that snow just really. Uh, makes a difference like that
1: i was gonna ask you how this how the snow changes uh you know the the hare hunting and the rabbit hunting up there
0: yeah well it's it's fun to hunt on snow and that's what we normally did you know it's uh uh hunted on snow and and matter of fact uh last year and i've hunted a couple times uh before the snow came on but uh Oh, the, the the hair a little bit, uh, you know, in that transition between uh, between turning colors, you know, they obviously turn white in the wintertime or whatever, and, and sometimes in that transition they get a little spookier, you know, but uh, but once they're all white, they think that nobody can see them or whatever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but they're just fun to hunt. You know, another thing that's changed over the years a lot is, you know, obviously now we hunt with Garmin's and everything. And that's almost like cheating up there with uh, with when it comes to hunting hare. You know, you basically got a lion coming at you or whatever, and you, they're kind of predictable, really. You know, you just uh, see where they're going to come across, and uh, and you can kind of set up pretty easily. But generally, what we do up there, it's like most anything else. Uh, you guys can probably relate. You know, a lot of times it's not about about the game or harvesting the game so much as as listening to the dog's work, watching the dog's work and things like that. So generally what we do, we just set up a camp, have a campfire there and sit around and uh, cooking stuff, you know, and this and that or whatever. And and every couple of the dogs will run a hair for a couple hours and somebody will get up and, you know, wait for it to come across the road. You know, that's kind of how we
2: hunt (laughs) up there on this trip. That sounds like my kind of hunt
1: right there. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, listen, you also live, well, now uh, live in some of the best coon hunting in the world. Um, Describe for our listeners a little bit, what the coon hunting's like there in Southern Michigan, Northern Indiana, Alan.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, you hear it a lot, you know, where uh, people think they have the best coon hunting in the world, you know, or anywhere. And I would probably say the same thing. You know, there's places I've been that I would say are probably even better. I say better. It depends on what you, uh, your definition of the word better is as it relates to the topic, I guess. But, uh, yeah, we've got a, a good coon population uh, here in northern Indiana, southern Michigan. And it's, uh, you know, uh, you hear... You know, I know a lot of guys, I have a lot of friends that think, you know, it's a, it's, and it's a great place to start young dogs, but it's, it's good, but it's, it's, it can also be tough. Steve, you can, you can probably attest to that. You know, it's not always, not every night is just easy hunting, you know, or sometimes when the, the difference is, I think around here, sometimes when the coons aren't moving, they just flat aren't moving. Right. You know, and, Mm -hmm. but then there's other nights when, uh, you know, uh, you can you can tree a lot of coon probably one of the hunts that sticks out to me in terms of treeing a lot of coons was uh uh 25 30 years ago it was old uh mike colder who's since passed he's from the mm-hmm. columbia city club him I remember and him started.
2: well yeah
0: yeah good guy he was kind of mike was kind of one of those guys that took my brother and i under their wing at the columbia city club when we first joined and we were kind of outcast a little bit we're hunting red dogs and this was predominantly a uh, tree walkers around the area, you know, a few blue ticks, I guess, but yeah. So, uh, Mike, uh, Mike and I hunted together a lot, but, uh, anyways, him, Larry Smith and his brother, Sonny, and I went out on the last day of season. It was one of those nights where, uh, where you would think probably weren't going to be, it wasn't going to be that good. It started snowing a little bit early in the evening and just, uh, just a still, night but it was snowing and it snowed all night not hard but just uh and you know it was the best night of coon hunting i have ever witnessed that night we treat made 32 trees
3: Gee, and whiskey.
0: and uh, and harvested that many coon on the last night of the season and left some doubles up there i think all in total we saw a total of 37 coons that night now we hunted from from uh dark to daylight that night but uh just couldn't you know just couldn't quit
1: yeah, when it's so that good, it you don't been, want that,
0: to go that, home. That, yeah, I guess the season would have ended that next noon or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. one of the last. And that, yeah, the that's last
1: that's unusual to get that kind of hunt in in northern Indiana because of the lake effect snow and how much snow was on the ground when you were when you left that evening.
0: Uh, it was it was not much, just barely you know, just barely covered. Mm-hmm. You know? But
1: uh, it was yeah. just one of those
0: nights. But obviously, that's the uh, that's not the uh, that's not typical here, you know, but it's generally, you know, on a depends how long you hunt or whatever, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good place, but you know, generally it's not that, uh, that, uh, uncommon to tree at least, you know, four or five tune.
1: One of the things that a lot of people don't, don't consider about about that country up there is, is the amount of swamp and, uh, water and, you know, just wet areas and, uh, it's a pretty diverse area yeah it's flat for the most part when you're when you compare it to uh rocky mountains or the appalachians or even southern indiana but uh, uh it's got its own challenges with weather and also with the amount of of uh wetlands and things in in northern indiana and in southern michigan there i don't i don't think a lot of people even realize how much water is there and that can pose a lot of problems for young dogs and and things like that
0: yeah Absolutely, and I think you're spot on. You're you're exactly right because you can get in get in a lot of swamps where it can get pretty uh, pretty ugly in places you don't want to places you don't want to be. But uh, yeah, I know there's there's several places there where I try to stay out of you know because of that very thing. But yeah, it's not all. Uh, I would say, peaches and ice cream. I guess you know. Boy, that's all, for golf
2: <laughs> That's for sure. I remember one night being back in a swamp, and uh, if I if I hadn't, I didn't have garments back then. In fact, I didn't probably didn't even have a a telemetry system at that time. I had a compass, and uh, and if it hadn't been for that, and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, the fog was so thick. And I'd gotten back in this what we called hellhole and you know, I'm I'm in muck up to my knees. It's trying to suck my, my frog leg waders off every step and uh, yeah so it's not all golf course hunting for sure but another aspect yeah. of that alan i think you will agree is with that number of coon in some places takes a tree dog it takes an accurate tree dog a dog that once he gets treed he'll stay treed because there's there's always another track to run when you're uh when you're hunting that type of territory at least when i was hunting those years i was there for 22 years and uh I needed a dog that, that was accurate, but would stay treed and not check too much.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very true. And that's, you know, you always have the debate of, uh, you know, North versus South, you know, a dog from down there doesn't do well here and vice versa, this and that, but yeah, it takes a, you know, it, you're exactly right. You know, there's, there's tracks out there to be run or whatever. And you need a dog to stick to stick with that track and get it done. Not kind of it a lot you know dogs that aren't used to maybe as many uh many coons or whatever that uh they struggle a little bit with that part of it but uh yeah that's uh that's very true you know talking about swamps every it seems like every fall you know i have uh people come up want to go hunting or whatever and in michigan or whatever there's the uh, lindell price uh, which you guys know well uh, he comes up quite a bit, uh, about every year. Alger Morgan was another guy from Tennessee that used to come up and hunt with us a lot up there in Southern Michigan. I don't know if you guys know Alger. He had uh, he was oh, a yeah. red guy there from, uh, yeah. Tennessee. Sure. The smoky mountain brandy dog always enjoyed hunting with him. And he used to come up there and hunt with us every year. And, and, uh, but I forget who it was. It was one of those guys. I think one night I got back into the Fulton game reserve. There's a part of that reserve that, uh, that is good to hunt but it also has one of those swamps you want to stay out of and one of those nights i got one i don't remember which one it was but <laughs> i got one of those guys back in there that, that you know make a couple trees back in there and keep turning loose and the last time we turned loose we probably shouldn't have kind of get a dog through there and we had uh i had them guys uh back there in that swamp for about three hours before we could get out so
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's.
3: Uh, yeah
1: oh, yeah
3: yeah so, <laughs> hey
1: Alan you just now, uh, uh yeah you got you got you gotta finish up that thought,
0: yeah there's you know what i hunted uh you know I know Steve lived up there too, and I know I think Steve hunted uh some on the west of the highway west of one thirty one I never hunted that area much over there, most of what I hunted there or hunt there in southern Michigan is uh, uh east of the highway, and talking of one thirty one there towards like Vicksburg, Colon, Fulton, Scott's in that area, you know, and and that is just, uh, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't get much better than that. Some of that farm country over there is just uh, outstanding for Kunai.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing no area up there. No
2: question. Yeah. I hunted more higher uh, high ground over west around the grape vineyards and the high woods, right. and we had a few right. potholes over there. Uh, when I would go over to Fulton to hunt with Bruce Loker or, uh, Ben Smith and Steve Irons, those guys around Athens in that area, uh, had some phenomenal hunts over in the area you hunted or hunt, uh, Allen, but, uh, most yeah. of mine, mine was, uh, was a lot more like that golf course hunting we talked about.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned Bruce Loker, you know, he's, uh. He's, Bruce is not doing well, you know, but I used to hunt Bruce's farms, and uh, he obviously grew up there in that area, and he hunted every nook and cranny around there, so it was always fun to go hunt with oh, Bruce. Oh, absolutely. You know, but,
2: yeah. Absolutely. That would be a whole co- uh, podcast, just telling Bruce Loker stories. <laughs> oh
0: yeah you're not going to do much walking with him he knows how to drive to every every little every tree seems like you know it doesn't matter if it's his farm or, or not you know heck he would turn uh, loose in the cemetery behind right behind town there
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, good good roads well, you know yeah, yeah. Well, you get right you get right uh, in there so
0: yeah he he just had that knack he didn't he didn't want to do much walking he'd always he'd always drive and and uh even cool. if it took uh took a lo- lot longer to get there he always wanted to drive and get as close as he could but
3: yeah
1: yeah that's true when I, when I hunted with Jimmy Phillips down in southern georgia uh we hunted some of those huge plantations down there and Jimmy was the same way you know and we're getting ready to take off to these dogs they weren't 100 yards through there and uh we were hunting the um, uh southern heritage plantation down there it's it's bigger than the county i live in and, uh, we're sitting there and we are listening to our dogs treat right there. And, and uh, the guy I went with and I were standing there listening to these dogs and we just, well, let's go. You know, we flip on our lights and, and Jimmy says, where are you going? So well, we're going to those dogs are not 150 yards. He goes, he goes, did you come down here to coon hunter? Or did you come down here to wade swamps? You know, he'd drive you all the way around that he'd drive you across <laughs> yeah. the levee, he'd pull right up. And those dogs would be 20 feet, 20, 30 feet off the side of this improved road down there and and uh you just you walk right to them and so yeah i i understand that mentality jimmy jimmy phillips was the same way
0: yeah yeah
1: hey alan yeah. let's shift let's shift gears a little bit you just got back from a uh, bear hunt in idaho is that right
0: yeah yeah i did uh just uh last week uh, we were out there hunting hunted the whole week out there but yeah
1: was that a uh was that a, a draw tag or or uh i'm sorry not a draw tag but a, a guided bear hunter did you go out there and do that on your own
0: no it was it was a a, a guided hunt uh, uh got introduced to uh, uh bud martin out there who has a uh he's like a fourth generation outfitter out west there he has a uh a camp in montana and then mm-hmm. his bear camp is there in uh, uh in idaho uh just uh um uh, south of the Lolo pass there in that national forest right there sure. in on yep. the Idaho side. And it was,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, yeah, it's, uh, that was that trip, uh, that trip, uh, rates at the top of my list for hunting trips I've ever taken. It was, uh, it was just amazing. I've been out West before, uh, in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, you know, but, uh, and those, I just love going to places like that. And, and those places are beautiful, but I'm telling you we we flew into missoula uh montana I bet that is what you,
1: I, is that the first time you've flown into missoula
0: it is it is you know that it's, was an, it's
1: just, uh, what do you th- what'd you think of flying into missoula Ah, uh, it's awesome
0: you know I took a little bit of video coverage flying in and just looking at the landscape around there you know is just uh it's just amazing you know this was last week, so the uh, middle of June. There's still snow on top of the mountains and everything. It was just amazing, you know, and we we get out there. We, we flew in on a Saturday and uh, get out and, and uh, spend Sunday there before we went to camp on Monday morning. But everything around there is just so awesome. You know, I did a lot of driving around, and uh, uh, but then we went up, uh, you know, to go hunting on Monday up Highway 12 there, which I guess is kind of known as the uh, uh, Lewis and Clark Highway there. Uh, uh up into the low low pass and it just got better and better you know I, I don't know there's something about you know i've i've always been uh loved growing up north you know in the up and just kind of the way the train is and everything up there uh it reminds me a little bit of that i guess but uh, but not it's just so much uh so vast and just all the the, the mountain range it's in the bitterroot mountain range but you know i have just i have just never seen anything like that i it was uh loved it it was just an amazing amazing trip
1: yeah and you can't describe it was that a uh, spot and stall count or was that a hound hunt
0: no they they do have this outfitter does offer both most of them is on bait sites or whatever but he does mm-hmm. offer the hunting with hounds and and i tell you where it first started is uh my, uh, stepson here, uh, several years ago his his older sister graduated high school. We had a graduation party out here at the house and everything. And after that, he told me, he said, you know, when, when I graduate, I think uh, instead of having a party, I think I'd rather go on a hunt or something like a bear hunt or something. You think that would be possible? And I said, you know what, I'll try to make that happen. So four years later, here we are, that happened last, last week. And it was him for him. And I it was, uh, um uh, it was uh we were green as grass when it comes to bear hunting matter of fact i have never bear hunted before so it was a great experience for the both of us and, and he absolutely loved it as well but no it was a uh this one was a on on bait sites nice. and we kind of hit the tail end of the season obviously you know the uh, when we were up there but uh yeah it's out in the, no cell cell phone service uh, very primitive and uh just out there in the in the wilderness like that was just uh and even him and i on the way back in get on top of the low low pass and you go back into the south i want to say it's i don't know 16 20 miles back in there where his bear camp is set up and just so many times that we stopped along the way just get out and just look around <laughs> take pictures and it's just yeah. magnificent country you know and it's uh that it was an amazing week it really well, was if-
1: if you feel like you need to get addicted to bear hunting, uh, you need to tune in. There's another podcast you need to know about, and that's the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast uh, with Clay I Newcomb.
0: Have, I have, yeah, I do listen to that some. Yeah, yep.
1: that's a that's a great podcast, and and Clay does a good job of uh, really digging down into bear hunting, and and uh, they have a good magazine too. They've got a lot of hound content uh, right. right in the magazine as well. So. Uh, it'd be good good listening for somebody that's that's looking at getting into bear hunting so they talk about bait and spot and stalk and hound hunting all kinds of things anything that's got to do with bear hunting even predator calling bears so uh, that's a good opportunity for people that that want to listen to to a lot more bear hunting content one of the things yeah. we're going th- going through out there right now in that country is uh, a couple of the uh, echo terrorist environmental groups out there trying to stop baiting on national forest so um that's something that that houndsmen need to be paying special attention to on that and and uh staying tuned in to uh, i just got a message from steven distracted me a little bit but uh uh sorry sorry. to multitask here man i'm telling you (laughs) what my brain's not working this morning that's for sure but anyway uh western bear foundation is really plugged into that so so if you if you want more information on that make sure you check out the western bear foundation and also listen to to the bear hunting magazine podcast steve that message was important (laughs) well absolutely and
2: in fact you don't really uh you know, I bear hunted for many years over in West Virginia or uh, in Virginia and, and really got to hunt out West in Arizona, and New Mexico and bear hunting with hounds is fun, but bear hunting of any kind is exciting. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just over the top fun and uh, glad you had a good trip out there, uh, Alan, yeah. a good time to spend with the boy and uh, I'm sure that was all all uh, really a great experience hey listen guy you and i i've kind of taken a, a similar paths in life um, and and that of course would be with our employment with the united kennel club i know with me it started out with the plot association and uh, meeting fred miller at plot days and later becoming a breed rep and and uh, going to kalamazoo for the meetings and then getting invited to be a field rep and and one thing led to the other and i went there full time in 1983 how did all that happen for you
0: yeah so um i i guess it was the uh summer of 2004 i was uh kind of like you i was involved in a breed association again it was a redbone breed association i was the uh acting vice president, but I was also the hunt director. So I was kind of in charge of putting on the hunt, you know, and it happened to be in LaGrange, Indiana. And that's where uh, Todd Kellum first approached me about to ask me about it. And quite frankly, I just kind of laughed it off a little bit. You know, I've been in the, as far as employment or work goes, I've been in the RV industry for a good number of years, about 15 years by that time, I guess. And, uh, uh, just kind of laughed it, laughed it off a little bit, uh, but I did think, you know what, maybe something I would enjoy doing, you know, I'm thinking, you know, man, just, you know, hunting and have a job that you, uh, that you like for, you know, that involves things you're interested in to begin with, you know, but, uh, anyways, I didn't, uh, we didn't talk a whole lot about it there, I guess, but he called me, I don't know, a month or so later and, and, uh, and, uh, then is when I really figured out that he was pretty serious about it. And, uh, so from, that's kind of how it got started there and, and, uh, several more phone calls or whatever. And, and, uh, uh, turns out, uh, I think it was November there, uh, November of 2004 is when I actually, uh, uh, first started working up there. But yeah, that's kind of how that came about, I guess.
2: Well, you know, that's, that's, uh, Kind of how things happen with me, too, and uh, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, and I think you can relate to this, when we go out to the events and we see people and everybody says, man, you've got the dream job, you know, (laughs) I mean, all you got to do is sit around and talk to coon hunters all day, and when it gets dark, you can pick any of the great dogs, they're on the grounds and you can go out and watch them go and all you know you're living in Disney World you know yeah, but i yeah. what they fail i know where real- you're going i know <laughs> where you're going <laughs> but i think what they fail to recognize is there's a monday morning attached to all that <laughs> and yeah. uh that's when things can indeed get interesting what's a typical day like at the at the kennel club for those who who can't imagine what what the job's like
0: yeah well yeah you're you're exactly right i think i had some of those same thoughts and i was just going to add to you that where i thought you was going you you'd think you'd get to hunt even more and i think it's been just the opposite you know right because uh, it's kind of the way it kind of works out but uh no, you know, I, I live in, in Indiana here, it's right on the Michigan, Indiana line. So I have about a 50, 45 to 50 minute commute to work every day, you know? So, uh, and you get, that's a, a little bit of a drive. It's just straight up 131 to 94 and you're there. It's good, good roads, I guess. But, uh, so I don't know for me, you know, that little commute is I actually kind of like it in a way because it gets on your drive up to work, you, you know, it gets you, gives you some time to think and, uh, about the day's priorities what's on the what's on the docket so to speak i guess and your priorities and you get to listen to houndsman x
1: and you get to listen to houndsman xp podcast well that
0: (laughs) that is the only problem with that i listen to that on monday night coming home and i finish it up on tuesday morning going there (laughs) again kind of how that works (laughs) but uh yeah so uh phones don't come on obviously till uh you know nine in the morning so it gives you a time to to catch up on emails and things like that but yeah steve you're right mondays uh mondays you get a lot of those uh and that's the highest volume of phone calls we get is on a monday mondays and fridays but i'd say mondays is is uh is pretty uh mondays and fridays are about the same i guess but yeah it's those uh this happened last weekend at the hunt type calls rules questions but uh you know i've always loved rules discussions and i still do and i never just never get tired of them or anything so i always i always like those to be honest you know obviously there's situations that happen that uh you got to deal with this and that or whatever it's uh uh some of those you know but you kind of learn to uh you know to uh not get too frustrated or too discouraged i guess sometimes with some of the things that uh unfortunately you got to deal with but uh yeah, that brutal stuff and and Steve I'm sure you can relate you answer the same questions hundreds of times you know but uh, uh it's uh it's it's all good and I enjoy it
1: as long as long as you're not answering them a hundred different ways Alan
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly right and you know what uh that's a good point you make you know because uh people remember what you told them here and <laughs> and uh, that's uh, that's something you want to know what you're talking about and, and uh, you know, be, be consistent, you know. So I,
1: I can well, relate uh, a little bit to that. Uh, with my employment as a conservation officer for all those years, you get the same questions over and over. And I can guarantee mm-hmm. you that uh, if you're not on your A game, then it will come back to haunt you because they will remember exactly what you told them. Uh, about Absolutely. particularly, Absolutely. so so I, I I understand, and a lot of times you get you kind of catch some grief because you know you kind of have you've just got to tell people what the rule says. You can't interpret it for them. You can't you you know in my business we just said here's the law, here's what it what it says, and and try to explain them the different caveats in the law, but don't editorialize on it because that will definitely come back and haunt you.
2: Well, you know yeah, one of the th- go ahead alan i've got a- no
0: no go ahead go ahead
2: no no i i just think back to those uh saturday mornings for instance let's say it was autumn oaks or maybe at the winter classic or any uh, breed days and a fellow comes up and tells you his story about his cast the night before and mm-hmm. um and uh i, I Reply that served me well for many years, and I don't know whether you uh, agree or not, but I would always tell them, well, if the situation happened exactly the way you say, without any argument, then this is the way I would rule on that. This is the way it should have been handled. However, There are many sides to the story, I'm sure. And I haven't talked to anybody else in your cast. So we'll wait until we talk to them and we'll see and try to get the big picture. But if it happened exactly the way you say, then I would do this. And so, and that always served me pretty well over the years.
0: Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I can relate to that. Exactly. You know, and you could, and that's one of the things you kind of learn pretty or I learned uh pretty quickly you know you 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 got to be very careful that you don't uh you know that you make it very clear like that because uh, there's often times you know and and you know I was a master hound uh you know served as a master hound so I kind of dealt with all questions and putting on hunts obviously before I worked up there but uh yeah, before you can come to a conclusion, it's, uh, you're better served to make sure you've got uh, all the information you need to, to, to make the right ruling, because you know how it is, you have one person calling and, and, uh, uh you know, and, and, and not everybody's like that, but oft- oftentimes you don't want to get caught with, uh, there's that one, there's that one little factor that is, is a difference maker, you know? So yeah, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. And the way you, uh, the way you, tell them you know is is is, uh is good advice and that's usually uh usually the way i kind of work it as well you know but uh sometimes sometimes it's uh (laughs) he can talk to four people on the cast and they none of them can agree exactly what happened you know but right
2: uh, it's like the old party game you know where you tell a story and you whisper it down the line until you get to the end and yeah. and you get a completely different story because. Well, listen. But I want to interject right here for some of our big game hunters and perhaps go. deer doggers and rabbit hunters and all that might be a lost lost balls in, in high weeds and all this talk about night hunting and competition. They're just fundamentally. The the setup is guys go out on a competition hunt with a judge. It may be a hunting judge or maybe one that doesn't have a dog in the cast. But anyway, in the course of this one or two-hour hunt, there are provisions to question decisions that are made. And those questions, then there's a, a further uh, uh, procedure that the questions come back to the hunt director or the master of hounds for a decision. And then there can be an appeal to that in some cases that we call a formal complaint. Am I right so far, Alan?
0: Yeah, you're spot on.
2: Okay. So this is what we're talking about for you guys out there who may have never attended a a competition hunt. And so there, uh, there is procedures in place to handle questions that come up. But the buck ultimately stops on your desk, Alan, correct?
0: Yeah, it does. When somebody files an appeal, that's when uh, the situation is still considered pending. And then, yeah, we make the final ruling on it there. Right. So, yeah. One,
1: right. One, th- one thing that I would interject here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but coming in on Saturday morning or calling UKC on Monday morning about something happened that happened in a cast over the weekend and you didn't follow the procedure sorry you know that procedure is put in place for a reason so um uh, recently there was a post on uh, social media about you know cheating and different things like that and and i stick to my thoughts that uh, if you don't follow the procedure you got to challenge that if in the field and you've got to follow that procedure or there's not a whole lot that you can do is that right alan
0: well there is you know and usually the way I explain it to him is, you know, uh, we have rules in place, procedures in place. And those, those procedures are there for a reason and good reason, you know, for, for everybody involved, for the, for that, be it the handler, the, the, the officials and ultimately us as well, you know, but guess what? My hands in making a uh, decision on an appeal, I'm bound by the same rules as written as everybody else, you know? So mm-hmm. if you don't follow those procedures, uh, yeah, regardless of what I think, uh, whether the situation was ruled correctly or incorrectly is kind of a mute point. You know, if, if you don't follow these procedures, uh, to where I can make a ruling on it, then, uh, then my hands are bound by that same rule. You know, I always go back to the one rule we have. And that says situation is not questioned and notated at the time the decision is made, uh, will not be considered. And that kind of applies to the master of hounds at an event, you know, mm-hmm. but it follows all the way through, you know, so, Um, so yeah, and there's, there's, there's good reason for that, you know, and I, I always, uh, I always think, uh, you know, our, whoever was involved with, uh, with coming up with those procedures, I, I feel like they really, uh, really hit the, hit the nail on the head with, with some of those rules like that, you know, now I know it's, you know, guys get frustrated sometimes and, uh, and, uh you know, that something was done incorrectly or whatever, didn't follow the procedures and they get frustrated with UKC or officials or whatever, and that, uh, they can't get it right, you know, but, uh, you know, otherwise I just feel like, uh, um, if, if we didn't have those written rules in, in place like that or those procedures and we didn't stick with them, we could really open ourselves up for a can of worms, I guess that uh, to, uh, it would just be a circus, I guess, so to speak. In other words, uh, it's not going to work well. If, if I, Monday morning, I get a call from last year's and a situation that happened at last year's autumn oaks, you know, it's, there's been a lot of water under the bridge. And <laughs> it just wouldn't, wouldn't work well, I guess. So yeah, those procedures are in place and I feel like for very good reason. And, and I think some of us in uh, in position of either master hounds or otherwise, you know, uh, uh it's, uh, our hands are bound by those rules. And it's a, I, th- I feel like it's a good thing, you know?
1: Well, so what I'm hearing you saying is if you don't like the procedure, uh, you can blame Steve Fielder.
2: Well, it is, it is rewarding to look at some of those procedures and know that I was in the room when they, when they were made, but Hey, things have changed yeah. a lot. And you, you mentioned this to me, uh, Not too long ago, Alan, in a discussion we had that, you know, things are different now. Things are not the same as they were when I was there. Everything moves forward and times change. And we live in this instant gratification thing where people know everything instantly, you know, and there's a lot of bad information out there. Uh, that travels at warp speed that i didn't have to deal with back in my my time i can remember when fred miller said (laughs) and for those of you who don't know who fred was he was the owner of ukc at the time i worked there he said we're not getting into this email thing we're not doing it because it'll take all of our time just answering those darn emails (laughs) so you know how things have changed over the years but hey listen you do a lot of travel don't you
0: yeah i do quite a bit yeah
2: yeah how many how many weekends do you think you're on the road a year well usually at least uh at
0: least between 20 and 25 you know and that includes that includes, you know, some of the Beagle trials. I, I don't think a lot of people, uh, the Koonon folks anyways, don't realize that, uh, you know, that I go to a bunch of those as well. So those are included. So, yeah, about between 20 and 25, you know, and that's from basically from January till the middle of October. So,
2: yeah. Yeah, You know, some of my best memories and some of them may be not so good. In the days that I was at UKC, we had motorhomes. You know, I think yeah. there was like three yeah. different ones. Fred loved those Winnebago Chieftains, and yeah. uh, you, had an you old know, green one, didn't you? Back in well, those days. well, we had we had some. <laughs> there were three different ones that I remember driving and uh, uh, over the years. And there was kind of a protocol. You know, we'd leave out on, maybe on a early Friday morning or maybe on a Thursday. Back then, it was mostly Friday and Saturday events. And we'd go stock up the thing with grub and, and you know, we, we would go out and we'd drive two hours each. And, and then while we weren't driving, we could make a sandwich or take a nap or whatever. Uh, but um, you have any interesting stories from the road out there that you could share with our, uh, uh, with our audience?
0: Well, I don't know as far as motorhomes go. You know, when I first started, Wayne Cavanaugh was the president up there, so uh, that was after Fred Miller, obviously. But uh, and he he had a motorhome. Now the one he had was uh, was uh, pretty extravagant, and it was uh, yeah, it was nice to travel with, I guess, sometimes. But it was almost too big and almost not practical, you know, for the most part. But I don't know. As far as traveling with motorhomes, I guess, uh, one that stands out to me was when the world finals was in Rogersville, Tennessee. Nice place up there on the hill, kind of an open-sided uh, facility uh, building, a headquarters building that we had. We've got this motorhome parked there on the side. Actually, it wasn't the big, that wasn't the big motorhome. We had one that was like a, uh, uh, I forget what you call it. It looks it's more of a jet stream type of vehicle, it looks like a FedEx truck. Uh, a smaller one but it's uh we called it the the silver bullet is what we called it but it was it was an rv and we had just gotten that uh i don't know a month or so before this world hunt but uh so i'm there in the headquarters building and this thing is parked on the side and like you said wayne's in there making a sandwich or whatever and i see smoke rolling out of this thing and I run down there. He actually yells at me and I look over a smoke rolling out of this thing. And <laughs> it turns out that he was making a sandwich on the stovetop and the, the microwave was right underneath there. And he just bumped and hit the on switch on the microwave. Still had all the, the plastic and the uh, styrofoam <laughs> and everything. inside <laughs> <this microwave. laughs> and, uh, and, uh, we, we got everything out, but, uh, Holy cow. It was, uh, <laughs> we thought we were going to burn the motorhome down and, and who knows what else. But yeah, that was one of the. The other one was uh, we used to, uh, we had this same one, I think it was the following year maybe, when the Winter Classic was still in Albany. So uh, Wayne and Todd and I would, uh, for a couple of years there, uh, make the trip down to Albany with the motorhome. We'd leave, you know, like on a Tuesday or whatever. And we'd try to make our first stop in Nashville. And you know Wayne and Todd, they're kind of into the music scene a little bit as well. But we took our had our guitars along, and went down to Music Row on the first night, and uh, left our uh, our our trailer with all our supplies uh, hooked to the motorhome, had it parked outside the hotel there. Went down on Music Row and everything the night before, and and the next morning, uh, uh, I was to get the motorhome started, get it warmed up and everything while everybody's getting ready. So I go outside. No motorhome, gone. Absolutely (laughs) not there. Trailer, nothing.
3: (laughs) So,
0: so right away I go in and we uh, we we call the sheriff's department, police department, what have you, and and uh, they kind of they kind of thought you know like most people that go down there spend the night before on a music row. We just don't we park somewhere we don't remember or whatever. And I was like, no.
1: Why could that have been?
0: They did long story short it did get broke into we had an extra set of keys in the glove compartment Mm. and they took off with that trailer and everything but they found it about seven blocks from there just uh ransacked they they took all our laptops for the hunt Mm. that were in the motorhome part of it took our three guitars we had in there and and tore the tv off the wall in the back and just they they ransacked that thing but uh Mm. Yeah, I never did never did get our stuff back, but we were a little worried with, you know, here we've got a, our winter classic to put on, and we don't have our laptops with all our hunt information on it, so that was kind of a goat rope for a little while or whatever, but uh, we got everything we needed, and the hunt went off well, but so, yeah, those were a couple of motorhome trips that kind of stand out for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one quite that exciting, but I remember one that Fred, uh, we were at Jasper, Indiana for the 25th anniversary of Autumn Oaks. And Fred had the motorhome set up out there with the air conditioning going. And of course, Labor Day weekend can get really hot down in the Southern Indiana. And uh, I guess someone just didn't want, like the ideas of uh, sitting in the motor home with the air going so they they cut the extension cord in two. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instead of just yeah, stealing a, the cord, they just <laughs> they, I, yeah. I often wondered if they felt a jolt when they cut that thing in two. But <laughs> anyway, that's funny yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah, so you know yeah, you obviously go to a lot of different events and this and that, you know, but as far as uh uh you know, other uh other events that kind of stand out to me just, uh, for no other reason other than just that I really enjoyed was, and I, I, I like all of them, you know, sometimes, you know, you're on the road so much. It's I'm like, uh, most other guys, my age, you know, but, uh, you have things going on at home and, and sometimes those things take a back seat, you know, and there's things you'd really need to get done or other places, you know, your family or whatever has things going that you kind of lose out on a little bit i guess but uh there was one trip i made uh early i want to say it was probably 2006 ish maybe uh went to california we had a, a club or two out there in california so uh i just kind of picked a date and it happened that the club was out there was going to have a tree walker sectional so i went out there on that trip and that was a, another one that was very memorable to me it was just different and uh, I guess I'm kind of one of those guys that kind of, I don't know, I like different events, uh, unique events. I guess what I'm saying, if they were all the same, they would probably get a little bit boring, I guess, maybe sometimes. But uh, that was one of those, just a total different scenery. And the, uh, uh, the club I went to was uh, north of Sacramento you know, so fly, and I'd never been to California before that, but I remember flying in and seeing all the water below, you know, it looked like everything was flooded, but turn out they were, they were rice fields. Yeah. And that's the, that's the kind of stuff that they actually hunted in out there, you know, and, and I went early in the week and pleasure hunted with some of those guys out there. But, uh, so we hunted those rice fields. And one of the things that was big out there in their area is they have a lot of the ducks unlimited as, uh, had some places out there you know with uh uh, uh with wetland, wetland yeah. wetlands set aside wetlands yeah so those are the, that's the type of stuff that we hunted you know and it was kind of interesting they had those one thing i always remembered was they had those a lot of tulies. uh if you guys know what that is looks like uh i'm not sure what we would call them back home here but uh i hunted in that stuff and it was just different and you know going to the club it was, uh, you know, it was hot and hot and dry there and everything, but, uh, it was just weird that far, that far West, see a big old UKC sign out there at the end of the driveway and pull in there and there goes a jackrabbit you know, (laughs) just, just different, you know, they just, they're just, uh, Hey, they have the same love for the sport and everything, but everything's just different, you know, and sitting around the club and just, uh, talking with those people. And we had some rules discussion stuff while we were, uh, while i was out there but it's you could see the sea of uh, the sierra nevadas you know from right from the club there and it was just a total different atmosphere and that was yeah. uh i was still also one of my highlight events that uh you know it was just a regular club event but uh it's just interesting you know to go out there and and uh and uh get to know some of those folks tiny santana i'm sure steve probably knows him. Sure. some of those guys
1: in that, yeah. that club yeah Good one stuff. of the one of the things that uh uh, we get, as we talk to people from all over the country, but our Western hunters seems to be, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, Alan. So, so pull up your big boy pants on this one. Uh, sure. uh, we are looking, uh, to interview people in the West and we always talk to them about their dogs and, and it seems that there's a drastic downturn in, in interest for, uh, UKC registered dogs in the West. Um. And of course, Steve and I, being from the east, we're very much into the registry part. And for for me, uh, you know, I, I've competition hunted quite a bit in, in my hunting career, but but I'm starting to to change my priorities a little bit. So the value to me with UKC is is it's real easy for me to pay UKC to keep track of my dogs' uh, pedigree and lineage. So. Um, can you address that a little bit, or have you put any thought into why there has been a drop-off in interest for UKC registered hounds and events west? I, would, I wouldn't I would say west of the Mississippi. I think you're going to have to go past, past Missouri, Kansas, some places like that, but you get farther west, and it seems like there's a real uh, downturn in the interest for UKC out there
0: yeah i i think i think you're right you know a lot of the the things that are bigger out there is you know they they don't have the coon like we do out east you know so they do a lot of field trial stuff uh things like that you know on big game scent but uh i you know i think they're you know a lot of those guys cross up their dogs you know and um uh, as far as breeding goes, you know, so a lot of them with our registration rules might not be able to be UKC registered. And I think their field trials, a lot of the field trials they have out there, they'll get a lot more entries of dogs that are, are not registered versus the uh, the licensed trials, you know, for, for UKC registered dogs. But I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the first podcasts you guys did that I listened to was with the, uh, uh, I'd have to go back, I forget his name Ro- now. Ro- uh, from- Ross Feenstra. Yeah. You know, and he, you guys talked about that a little bit and it really, it really made me think where we're probably not uh, getting communicating or not getting connected enough with those guys is that it became apparent just listening to him talking, you know, that he's not even aware of our uh, uh, crossbred, uh, uh, crossbred stuff that we have now, you know, that we've really not reached out to those guys, you know, and it's kind of, uh that we probably should have and they know very little about it you know we've not really we've really not uh i guess yeah reached out to them about that you know and and before i think the way our registration rules were we just couldn't uh register a lot of their dogs for for one you know but
1: uh yeah well i think there's
0: definitely got my attention listening to him talk about some of that stuff
1: you know they're they're still dipping into um you know the 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 abundance of hounds back here, back east, uh, for guys out west, they probably don't even fathom how many hounds are back here. But I do know that that several hounds from the east make their way west every year, either as pups or young dogs or something like that. So yeah, but it just seems like there's um, no interest in in or limited. I'm not going to say no, limited interest, or or at least a uh, uh, a decreasing interest in you know, getting those hounds registered and, and keeping that lineage there with UKC.
2: I think, uh, if I can jump in here, Chris, on this, I think it's it hinges upon the events, and I think Alan uh, uh, mentioned that earlier. Um, there's no doubt that the registry, UKC particularly, which I'll go out on a limb here, is really the registry for anyone that's, uh, seriously interested in animal husbandry and keeping a uh, record of generations of, of, of dogs. Um, but I, I think the events that happened after World War II certainly created the need for a registry because it was a ticket. You know, you had to have the registration certificate to play the game. And that, you know, it built on that. And out west, they really haven't had those kinds of events. I just interviewed a, a, a guy named Jared Higgins out in Utah and, mm-hmm. uh, for Bear Hunting Magazine, and we're doing an article on his Thunder Dog that was a tremendous uh, uh, bear dog. And Thunder was a crossbred Walker Blue Tick and uh, he uh, jared told me that he had 20 generations of uh, uh i think no 20 years of breeding with only one outcross in that time on these dogs but they're not purebred dogs and and they certainly would qualify for the crossbred program that that ukc has but i think the idea is that uh, you know there's really no incentive for them to register outside of having as chris said uh, a, a record keeping uh uh facility or, yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah i'm struggling for words there but but the point being that uh, some of those breeders have kept records on their dogs and they certainly would qualify am i wrong uh for uh, the crossbred program no
0: that you're you're exactly right they absolutely would you know and and uh that's why I said, you know, just listening to uh to to you guys' podcast there with him, you know, just uh, really kinda got my attention that is hey, we've not probably reached out to them to offer uh them or let them know that we do offer uh, uh you know, the, the crossbred thing now or whatever and, and, and I don't know, but I think it's like you said, is uh they uh they do Uh, tend to kind of keep the same lines for years and years with, with very few outcross. this bear hunting trip I went on, you know, he does outfit with dogs as well. And, and, but it's a train out there. So steep, he said, you know, a lot of guys that sign up for hunting with uh, a bear hunt with on, with dogs is generally that lasts about a day or two and they resort to sitting on a (laughs) base. And I can tell why I would be one of those guys. But, uh, but here again, this outfitter had, he had some hounds out there too, about five or six around there but uh and he said the same thing you know his his line comes he's a fourth generation uh outfitter out there and he was talking about the same things you know these dogs he's got now are that come from the same line that his grandfather had you know started mm-hmm. with and uh but uh yeah he did tell me when the first time i talked to him on the phone uh you know he knew he knew what ukc was he said he used to register his dogs with him and Till he kind of figured out is that all Fred Miller wanted was his twenty dollars, you know. So other than that, it didn't do him a whole
1: lot of good. Well, let me yeah. let me throw something so. in here. Let me throw something in here, and uh, I'll expect some royalties back on this. But you remember, <laughs> okay. you you remember a few years ago, Alan? I think you and I were discussing setting up a either a hunt test or uh, similar to our night hunt game back here but for our big game houndsmen where they could receive different certifications uh, develop a set of rules and it's a wild hunt you've got strike you've got you know you've got all kinds of different things that you could throw in there but uh, uh, set up a program for the big game houndsman where you could have a you know big game hound certification big game hound elite certification things like that do you remember that conversation
0: i do i don't know if it was the one we had at plot days but i do you know i was very interested in entertaining any ideas like that you know it's uh for me i'm not that guy to uh you know not having the experience with big game hunting or whatever but definitely would uh you know interested in in a uh you know uh, a scoring system of such you know to uh to evaluate dogs big game dogs like that you know but uh just seemed like it never, never really got off the ground as far as as well, coming up with uh, with something that would work, you know. But uh, and and still interested. And the same goes for. Uh, I talked to uh, several of the guys at like plot days with some of the uh, with some of the big game like the 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 bear bays or the and the and the uh, bear bays and things like that, you know.
1: But uh, well, I yeah, think we so were. So far, we were... It's
0: not really got anything on my table to really take a good look at. Yeah,
1: I think that conversation came up in the wake of the mess with the Bear Bays down there in South Carolina, uh, and the fire yeah. and the fire that those were drawing is when we started having the conversation. But I know mm-hmm. we've got listeners in here. Uh, we've got some pretty critical thinkers that are listening to our podcast. Uh, and I'm not the guy either. You know, I, I, I think we need mm-hmm. to, to, uh, maybe provoke some thought for those Western houndsmen that, uh want to be able to put a certification on their pack or individual dogs or whatever out there that that do know where they're hunting they do understand the game and if I'm hearing you right UKC is open to proposals from you know and I'll throw out a name here Jonathan Lesprince I mean that guy's he's got a big brain he's a critical thinker Uh, and he's very heavily involved in the uh, Nevada organization out there and uh, Ross Feenstra is another one so I think there are people out there that that could assist in this. We just need to maybe channel the energy or give them some some options or or plant the seed and and let them help you develop something like that.
2: Alan, uh, uh, how do they contact you at at UKC if they have ideas along this line? And I, I know what you're saying is true. This has been bantered around for many years. It was when I was, uh, was there and with the other registries that I worked with, I know some guys in North Carolina were working on a, some kind of a scent system for the field trials. I think that was Clint pace and some, uh, some of those guys down there, but how do they contact you at UKC with this kind of information or suggestions, or maybe they've got a plan that they've worked at that's sitting on the, on the shelf there, uh, and they can send it along to you.
0: Yeah, either, obviously different avenues, a call is obviously one, you know, but email, email or call me, but uh, yeah, you know, it's something that has always interested me, different things like that. You know, uh, I've always been that guy, you know, growing up on the farm, we actually had stock dogs, you know, and dogs that do stuff, and even even those stock dogs, you know, the cattle dogs interested me, you know, just in the way they worked and, and, and the same way goes with, uh, with big game dogs, you know, and, and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, I have a huge interest in that, you know, and any, anything like that, you know, to kind of evaluate dogs in that, in that manner. But, uh, yeah, uh, just, uh, just call the regular office number, ask for me or whatever, or shoot me an email or, or anything like that. You know, my email is, uh, as uh, kind of plastered over our website, you know, in different places on the forum, you can look at my name there, and as a click on the name, usually it takes me right to my email address. But yeah, not that hard. But uh, certainly interested in entertaining any such ideas. You know, about the only one that we have is, like we mentioned, is field trials, just on on drag scent or whatever, be a big game or otherwise. But that's about the only thing we kind of have in terms of evaluating big game dogs, I guess, so to speak. And, you know, up to now, it's been only for those that are actually UKC registered, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It would be
0: interesting. I really think it would be interesting to come up with something like that. And like I said, I'm, I'm not that guy either with, with not having the experience, but I'm sure there's guys that are out there that could really, you know, uh, probably come up with something, you know, I know it's easy to don't need a set of rules. If you go out just for coon hunting, for instance, you hunt from dark to daylight uh, the next morning, you know which one is is was the best dog that night for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time, you know, and I'd say say there'd be be interesting. It's interesting stuff for sure.
2: Well, that website would be www.ukcdogs.com. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, the and point. they can chase you down there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh. Hey, hey, listen. Look- you have uh, autumn oaks coming up. Chris, I'm, I apologize if I jumped in. you have no, something that's, else that's
1: before what, we? That's what. Our, that's where I was going. I, you know, we've been generating a ton. I, I'm getting messages about autumn oaks. We've mentioned it a couple times. Uh, a lot of interest and excitement from western houndsmen that, that want more information on autumn oaks uh, to the point where they're... You, they don't even under they don't even know how to pronounce the name of it at this point. So I get all kinds of variations in the names, and maybe it's not coming out clear on the on the podcast. But it's autumn, like the fall, and then oaks, like the tree, autumn oaks, and uh, generating a lot of interest on that, Alan. So Steve, I was just going to tee that up for you, run with it.
2: Well, really, uh, just a little bit of history for our less our listeners. Autumn oaks uh, has been the uh, how How shall we say signature event for United Kennel Club for many years, dating back to nineteen sixty and uh, where it uh, I think for three years there it was in Greencastle, Paducah, Kentucky, and even Kalamazoo, Michigan, and then it settled in in Greencastle, Indiana, for a twenty year run. and then uh, it bounced around up in Michigan and down in North Carolina, finally settled back in Indiana. Alan, uh, you know, I had many good years and, and great times with Autumn Oaks, and I'm sure you have, and, and I, uh, when I go now and I look at it and I look at the scope of the thing and see all the improvements that you guys have made, it's just uh, just phenomenal. You, you and Kellum and all the people at UKC have done a super job with it, but tell our listeners a little bit about it. What is it and What and, and what can they expect there this year?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of been dubbed as the granddaddy event, you know, of the year, it, each year. And it's it happens on Labor Day weekend every year is the, is the date of it. So, you know, this year falls on the last weekend of August, you know, but it's all, always geared around Labor Day. But, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, I don't know, to me, and and I always felt that way before I worked up there, it was just so much more than a coonhound event. It's like a grand reunion of sort of, you know, all the different breeds and, uh uh one of those where a hunter a hound enthusiast can come even if you're not hunting a dog uh there's just everything there you know all the all the a lot of the big breeders are there Uh, a lot of the stud dogs and uh and supplies just everything it's like the it's it's the granddaddy event and it's uh it's a basically a three-day three-day event you know kind of kicks off on thursday used to be, I think back in your day, it was just kind of a Friday, Saturday thing, but we've kind of kicked it off with a Thursday, Thursday deal, you know? And, uh, the other thing that we've done, you know, uh, when I first started, uh, they had a lot of guys come up there early for it. You'll have, you'll have people coming in on Sunday, right? The Sunday before already to camp out and, you know, waiting for the gates to open. And those lines there just still amaze me how, uh, how uh uh, people line up to come in that early get a good spot to camp all week and everything but for a lot of folks it's their annual uh uh, vacation you know they kind of schedule their occasion or vacation around that event but uh yeah so what i I was getting at we've added even uh we've added some licensed hunts throughout the week like little warm-up hunts you know it's uh uh back in the day at one time you'd get a lot of these out-of-state hunters that would come up there and they'd want to go hunting a little bit with their dogs you know before friday rolls around and and uh uh you know a lot of them i say a lot of them some of them didn't have license weren't exactly legal you know and, no and things like that and that was that's not good for us as a registry you know we don't uh we you know we don't want to uh you know, we want to, uh, we want to work with uh, conservation and, and and follow our game laws and all that. They're all obviously there for a reason. And so what we started doing is having these little licensed warm up hunts and they've worked out so well for a lot of people like that, you know, and make sure everybody's legal and gives them a legal avenue to uh, more of an organized avenue for them to go get warm, to get their dogs warmed up. Obviously there's some uh, most of those are uh, uh, what we call slam events, where they pay out money instead of trophies or whatever. And oh, we've got some added purse stuff, but uh, yeah, just basically the whole week of Autumn Oaks, there's something going on there, you know. So yeah, it's a it's a fun deal and a good deal, and it's still a still a good event. And and quite frankly, you know, it's it's that one, and we have several events obviously, but it's it's one of those events for us as as UKC, our staff, and all that. We obviously talk to so many people on the phones and everything, but that's one of those events where you can get out and uh, be one-on-one with your customers and those that support you, and it's uh, ah, it's just a good thing. I always enjoy it. It's just a a good event, and uh, yeah, any of your listeners, I'd uh, definitely uh, if you've never been, uh, uh, put that on your calendar and 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 come out to Autumn Oaks sometime. And
2: and where is and that, check Alan? It out. Where is that? It's in Rich. It's in Richmond,
0: Indiana, which is right on the. Uh, it's on the eastern side of uh, the Indiana line, right on the Ohio line, just right off of Interstate seventy. So it's uh, it's about uh about an hour east of Indianapolis, Indiana, just right off the highways or US seventy. That's at Interstate the Wayne
2: Co- Wayne County Fairgrounds, right?
0: It is, yeah. Big, big fairgrounds. We got a nice facility there, you know, vendors, lots of vendors, 40, 40 plus vendors, I think. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice facility. We have the, uh, raper centers, our headquarters building. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, climate controlled building. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a big, big deal every year.
2: Well, Chris and I are going to be there with Houndsman XP. I think we discussed that with you before earlier alan and we r- really appreciate the opportunity to to come and to uh hopefully we're going to do some live podcasting from the event and uh to kind of get some of that excitement you know out there to our listeners so, well, and- yeah
0: that's uh, that's that's good you mentioned some of the things that have changed there from automokes. probably one of the biggest things that uh, that i've been involved with was uh you know it's uh there's a lot of emphasis put on our, our uh, highest title or degree, which is the grand champions in this case, the, in the shows, the grand champions and the grand night champions. You know, they can, winning that event gives them another title, which is the national grand night champion or whatever. But uh, so uh, is the, is the grand 16 in the, in the uh, grand division. And that has, that has just worked out so well, been so well supported and uh you know before you would uh simply have the highest scoring dog in that division was your overall champion and uh you know the hunting is good there it's uh uh, you know the hunting is very good and it's it's not uncommon to have some very good scores you know and and uh but there's a lot of guys i think that were kind of the consensus that they can't really compete with some of those big scores so when we adopted the grand 16 format for it where those grands all hunt on friday night all of them do and then you take the the top 16 scores uh and they go back out in kind of an elimination event to determine your your uh, national grand as well as your uh national uh, breed winner which that's a pretty big deal, you know, for all the breeds just to be the National Grand Night of Autumn Oaks each year. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of, you kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's a you kind of stand out, I guess, as far as a, a uh, as far as recognition goes for breeders or handlers, owners, what have you. But so that's been very well supported, and the thing that I really like about this Grand 16, it gives hunters feel like they have an opportunity because generally you know, the lowest score to get in that top 16 is generally very, a very reasonable score, you know, in the, somewhere between four and 500 generally. And and I like that, you know, it, it gives it, it, uh, it gives hunters the, the, uh, they feel like they do have a chance, you know, you're probably if you go out and score on one coon, you're probably not going to get in, but if you can get in and on a, a couple coon, there's a good chance you can get in to move on. So Uh, i I think uh you know from the first year we had that our grand division we were having about 30 casts you know so about 120 30 grand nights and once we implemented this that uh entry number has just uh doubled in size quickly and has pretty much remained there so now we hunt anywhere between 60 and 70 casts of grand nights every year at all the
1: right and alan i want to i want to kind of digress back to a point we were talking about i you know i told you to put your big boy pants on i'll put them on now too um yeah with uh your comment about conservation and coming up here and hunting without a license you know 15 years ago uh probably longer 20 years ago we realized uh, you know being being in that arena as a conservation officer we realized that people were coming up here and and hunting and i'm not going to make any bones about it they were hunting illegally um, yeah and so there was a lot of effort and some of it i organized on my part to um, make sure we're showing up as officers showing up at autumn oaks letting people see our face uh, be on the mm-hmm. grounds there but try to educate people on on the importance of buying that license uh, a five-day non-resident hunting license is 31 Okay, think about that. Thirty-one dollars for mm. five days of you being able to come to Autumn Oaks. You're putting something back in this, in into the sport. And if we could get people to realize that you spend more on chew that week than you're going to on your license. For thirty-one dollars, uh-huh. I don't I don't know where you could go and get that much that much bang for your buck, uh, as you are when you're when you're paying thirty-one dollars. And the other flip side of that that sometimes escapes us is when our hunters show up and we see a spike because there are people in indianapolis that that keep track of of these sort of things if we would see a spike in those five-day non-resident license that brings so much credibility to our hound hunting community and that helps when when you've got a sport that's so under fire from from anti's anti-hunting groups and different things if you can show that hey these guys are conservation oriented all that money goes back into the resource that they're here enjoying they're the the hunters dollars pay for wildlife type message that is so huge for 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 the DNR managers and and to be able to use that as ammunition to show that, say no, these guys are, are contributors. They aren't here taking; they are contributing. Does that mean everybody's going to show up with a license? Probably not. And that's why they pay. That's why they paid me for 28 years. But on the, the the side for the people that are looking at ways to save our sport, man, buy that license. Don't tolerate hunting with people that don't have them because that's how the deer hunters, duck hunters, some of these other uh, uh, sport sporting groups are are passing us by is is they are very conservation minded so you know don't think you're trying to get there are people that are working they put extra shifts on during that time around that area up there i might be giving away some trade secrets but daggone it just spend spend your 31 bucks you can buy it online and get that license and and uh, be legal but also help this sport you know with credibility credibility
0: yeah, you know what, Chris, you're exactly right. And there's, there's a lot to be said there. And, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, it, c- comparing back to some of the old days, I think, the, you know, some, sometimes we always, as, as hunters, uh, we're, we're, I guess, our game, our game wardens and conservation officers in our area. We need to be working with them. There's so much to be said. There's so much positive to come of that. And I, and I think we've come a long way, or at least in my experience, it seems I like agree. we have, you, you know, and I think you, as far as like, uh, in my area, you know, calling Indiana, you know, the, uh, the North Midwest, I guess, so to speak, uh, you personally have been very influential in that, you know, and, and, and forming a relationship, especially in the state of Indiana, you mentioned the Hoosier tree dog Alliance that you kind of helped found and everything that was huge, I think for, for that and just things like that. And you guys being at, at autumn Oaks, that's a, that's a good thing. We, we certainly appreciate that. And always, uh, you know, uh, always, always appreciate seeing all those guys there. And, and, uh, and, and, and you can't stress enough for how the importance of, of hunters working with the uh, conservation officers in their area, regardless of where they are, Uh, you know, never working against them. There's just so much good, that can come from it. And in this day and age, like you said, we have even all the more reasons to be working together. And, and, and there's some, there's some parts of the country, you know, and here again, you're going back to some of our events or our uh, licensed events in some parts where uh, clubs and States, North Carolina is one of those uh, where, you know, on our scorecards uh, that we have that they take out to the field in a competition, they have places on them to note the, the number of coons seen as well as the number of coons scored on, but just sharing information like that with, uh, with your, uh, uh, conservation in, in your area,
3: mm-hmm.
0: it's things like that, that we need to be doing more of and working together. I think it would be, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's influential and, and, and our hunters can certainly help a whole lot in that respect, I think. and And sometimes I think we don't do enough and sometimes it's a, Probably just a matter of not getting connected enough, either. You know, with the with the conservation in our areas. You know.
1: Yeah, we're not we're not the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason those guys are showing right. up there, showing up there, is because it interests them. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. <laughs> they're 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 walking into your, they those officers that are walking in there. I can tell you that twenty years ago, it was very uncomfortable for. Uh, one of our officers to to walk into a coon hound event or a hound event uh, because they're not familiar with it. If it was a National Wild Turkey Federation Ducks Unlimited Banquet, man, they walked right through the doors. But but for them yeah. to, to yeah. walk into there surrounded by uh, people that they know probably have a little bit of animosity towards them, I can tell you that they've got good intentions to be there. So embrace it yeah. and build that relationship. Steve, yeah, we are well, going... you
0: know, I think the stigma is kind of, you know, they're for us. They're not against us. They're for us. You know, let's, uh, you know, need to recognize that. You know, right,
1: Steve? We're going on two hours here, and Alan, did it feel like we've been talking for two hours?
0: No, and I apologize for that. I probably no, no, no,
1: no, much. no. <laughs> we're not. We're not limited to time limits here. And when the conversation's good, we want to let it flow. So, Steve, <laughs> uh, you got anything we need to hit before we before well, we wrap it up?
2: Alan has been an awesome guest, no doubt. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I'd just like to ask a, a short question, Alan, about anything new coming out of Kilgore Road. There, uh, anything that our listeners uh, might be interested in, as far as uh, any changes or or announcements or anything of that nature.
0: Well, I don't know. Maybe not really. We have some things in the works that really aren't ready for announcement, but some things we're working on, and and a lot of that has to do with progressing. I guess as far as technology is one of them, you know. But uh, I, you know, we've made some changes. One of the biggest changes that's in effect for this year is is the way we uh, our championship point structure or whatever format, so to speak, is uh, is uh, based more on a cast win type uh, format or whatever. We have the double headers now where a club can have two separate events, on the same night, like an early hunt and a, and a late hunt. And, uh, some of those have done quite well, but as far as, you know, uh, other new stuff, so to speak, I think we're doing, uh, uh, I've always felt we've been a little behind in keeping up with technology, you know, to, to make it easier, better for our customers. And, and everybody involved. So those are some of the things we're really working on. And and you may uh, uh, remember the system you had back when you worked there. Well, you know what? We've still basically got the same system. So they're working on updating that kind of stuff and just uh, being able to offer our customers uh, a lot more than we have in the past. You know, one of the things I'm kind of excited about is, uh, is uh, uh, you know, just just like anything else, you know, with technology, there's so much good that comes with it, you know, and and being able to utilize that to make it more customer-friendly, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, we're probably gearing towards uh, for clubs to be able to confirm their events online. And hopefully, ultimately, one day not too far out there, we'll be able to do our event reporting and things uh, things like that online as well. We uh, obviously have a lot of meetings about this kind of stuff, you know, and the one thing that came up again, and it's probably way out there, but, uh, you know, as far as keeping score and things, everybody has a phone, you know, the conversation came up again about uh, having an app to, for scorekeeping, you know, during a hunt and things like that, you know, so, I don't know, we're working on a lot of stuff like that, so, and uh, yeah, a few other things, so, Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I guess it's safe to say that you do uh, use email up there, that uh, you're not still following uh, Fred's instructions.
0: <laughs> well, Fred would probably roll over if he knew most of the conversations we Todd and I have between ourselves. Todd Kellum, you mentioned him a couple times. He's the uh, vice president up there, and he's kind of my superior, I guess, so to speak. But uh, So we communicate a lot, but uh, Fred would probably say, what, you know, if we told him, you know he's he's two <laughs> rooms over from me, but a lot of times uh, we correspond through email. Right there at the office, we uh, might of seem course. kind of odd, you know. But
2: well, you know
0: uh, that's how things work these days, you know.
2: Right. Well, you talk about all the changes, and you know, to in to Fred's credit, he was the guy that moved the UKC into the computer age. You know, yeah. when I went to work yeah. there in '83 full time, they had just switched over to a system. Where the clubs could call in and and search a day, you know, and uh, and uh, the yeah. the uh, the office uh, clerks or whatever you want to uh, call them uh, we could get right on there and look it up and determine if another club was within a hundred miles and say yes or no on the phone, and that was a giant step forward from the old yeah. system yeah. of doing everything by mail, you know. So, right. yeah, right. so. Yeah, well, there's no doubt that uh, UKC's always been the innovator when it comes to hounds. Uh, They know it all the way back to the 1898 when old Chauncey Bennett decided to do business uh, as the United Kennel Club. And it's been a a great run and certainly wish you guys up there a, a very, very successful run in the future, I think. As as I've said a few times, I'm in standing in the checkout line, you know, and uh, I'm probably not going to see a lot of these things come to pass. But I've seen a lot, and I've always been proud of my association with the UKC over the years. and And uh, people make a company, and 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 from that standpoint, I think UKC has some of the best. So it's been great, Chris. Do you have anything else for our friend Alan?
1: Uh, well. Just be looking forward to, uh, some proposals on a big game hound certification. I'm sure we've piqued some interest out there somewhere. So, uh, it's been a great, great conversation. Like I said, when you can, when you can get guests like this, that, uh, you got, you know, we're not meeting you on the phone. We know you, we've, we've, we've shared a lot of, uh, uh, time at big events together, Alan, and, and I've always appreciated your, uh, personality and, and, uh, it's not always been peaches and cream. I mean, I've I've brought things to you uh, that that uh, were challenging, and I've been a challenge. I know that, and uh, so I just always appreciate you. I've ought to always have appreciated to work you. with
2: him day to day, Alan. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe we'll we'll have that a private conversation about that. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: no, I would say it's all been, you know, on my part anyway, Chris. It's always been good and and uh, always always good working with both of you guys. And like you know, Steve, uh, Steve is one of those guys. Obviously, uh, well, is uh he's made his mark in the in the sport and and especially with the registries and everything and uh has done so much for the sport you know I, there probably never will be a guy that has has uh done as much as Steve has over the years that he's been associated with it so uh yeah that's uh you know I certainly give a lot of credit to Steve for everything he's done
2: and there's yeah. a lot of
0: guys like that that
2: well, you're absolutely right, Alan. There are a lot of guys out there that have done so much uh, to, to bring this sport along. And that's what Chris and I, when we decided to go down this road, uh, we wanted to do all that we can to preserve what those guys have started and to build on that and keep this thing strong for future generations for those young people like your stepson that you took on the hunt out west and and uh, you know i i got um uh and, and i think we're going to talk about this perhaps uh uh later chris and i but you know i get the emails and i get the messages and, and on social media people that say they enjoy this podcast and many of them are young people and that's what this the the mission is of Houndsman XP is to uh, bring those people into the sport, keep them here, uh, equip them to go on into the future, and 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 when they themselves can mentor somebody else down the road.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You're you're exactly right, and there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot in there what you just mentioned and that's that's exactly right you know if we don't get our uh, young kids involved or whatever give them that opportunity or open those doors for them when they're knocking or whatever way we're we're missing the boat you know as far as the future of this sport but yeah you're right
1: well alan i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap it up and give steve the final word here but uh again you've been a I i really appreciate you coming on and uh and uh you just do such a great job of representing UKC and uh True. In, gen- in general. So, I want to con- I want to give you some accolades for that and uh make sure you tell your podcast uh junkie coworker Todd Kellum, he's got to listen to uh listen to this one cuz this was a good one.
0: <laughs> well, I will do that and and before I go I, again, first I just want to applaud you guys' efforts with this uh with this podcast and everything you're doing with and reaching out to so many different people. And what I really appreciate is the diverse topics you guys are interested in getting out there. And it's such a positive for uh, hunters of all kinds and houndsmen of all kinds. So, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for what you guys are doing with that. And, uh, and it also, maybe just in closing, you know, uh, uh, just, uh, you know, we talked about kids or whatever, and I know they have all kinds of gadgets, you know, uh, Uh, garments and and all this and that and the the way we coon hunt some has kind of changed a whole lot with some of that stuff that comes on but i would just encourage sometimes especially the younger generation that even though you have all these gadgets and everything uh sometimes put them in your pocket when you're out there and you know there's so much more to hunting than just uh Than just looking at that thing, you know, when you're uh, spending too much time with that, you're missing out on the, a lot of the other things in the elements that you're in, you know, listening to the frogs out there and the crickets and, uh, and the stars, you know, and laying there, listening to a hound and listening to all those things. Don't forget to miss or to, uh, don't miss out on those things that is, uh, uh, in nature and in the elements that we, uh, that we're in the environments we're in when we're out there hunting with our hounds, you know, so. So yep. yeah, but thank you guys. Really appreciate it. And it's no problem you to even be asked to come on here
1: oh no it's our pleasure steve you've got the final word
2: chris i tell you what i'm a houndsman so are a so is our guest today we love it we love it because of the hounds i of got a dear friend over a west virginia over one of the hardest hunters of have ever seen in my life his name is john harris And he said this, and it remains true, and it is my creed. (laughs) Chris, you follow your hound, and I'll follow mine.